0: Well, have um, Isaiah chapter 6 open in front of you, please. That will be a great help to me and a great help to you. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which is powerful and active, a creating word, a reforming word. And pray that you would speak to us through it now. We ask that what we know not, you will teach us, what we have not, you will give us, and what we know not, what we are not, you will make us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning with um, a rather striking quotation. Um, It comes from a book (coughs) by a South African author called david wells i had the privilege of meeting him in london a few years ago and one of his books is called god in the wasteland and i hope seb will be able to put this quotation up on the screen for us because there's a place in that book where he says this it is one of the defining marks of our time that god is now weightless He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence nevertheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, And his truth (laughs) less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. Now, I don't know what you feel about that. But uh, it does seem to me that what he's saying is very much as relevant today as it was when the book was first written about 30 years ago. Because... The fact is, we may know the great truths of the Gospel, Uh, we enjoy learning about them, and we might be able to share the Gospel with impressive clarity. But friends, isn't it the truth that so often uh, there is an alarming gap between our theology and our living? What we say we believe hasn't really penetrated To the core of our being to the point where our lives reflect the message. Now why has that happened? Why has that happened? What's the problem? Let me offer you a suggestion and you can tell me afterwards whether you agree with me or not. Seems to me that in recent times the number one attribute of God that the church loves to talk about is love. That, of course, is not a wrong thing. <clears throat> After all, the Bible says God is love. But friends, the church's teaching about the love of God has all too frequently been completely divorced from any teaching on God's holiness. And the result is that many, the understanding that many Christians have about God's love is actually distorted. Or even completely false because you see in the Bible God's love is always presented to us in a context and if we ignore the context we miss the true meaning so the big idea this morning is this the only way to an experience of God's love is to experience his holiness First, Uh, holiness in the Bible combines two ideas. Uh, Firstly, it tells us that God is separate, He's distinct, He's far above us, uh, He lives on a completely different plane outside time and space. That's part of what it means. And secondly, His holiness tells us that He is morally perfect. Uh, So, one dictionary defines it like this, God's holiness is his total and unique moral majesty. So you've got those two things, his distinct moral majesty. Now what does this mean for us? Isaiah 6 provides the answer, but in order to see the significance, the context is really, really important. So just glance back to chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah has been pronouncing God's judgment on the people of Israel for her rebellion and disobedience. Look, for example, with me at chapter 5 and verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field, till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now the idea in that verse is that the property developers have moved in and such is their greed that social justice has gone out the window. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after their drinks who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. In other words, their lifestyle is totally self-indulgent and that self-indulgence has blurred their appreciation for God and his work. They know about the deeds of the Lord. Yes, they do. But they have no regard for them. They attach no weight to them. Or what about verse 20? Woe to those who call evil good. And good, evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That means that they're moral compass has become so distorted that they can't tell right from wrong anymore. Now we look at all of that and we think, well okay, that does sound rather like what's happening all around us out there today, yes? Actually no. Because the shock is that God is not there pronouncing judgement on the pagans. He's not talking there to unbelievers. He's talking to the people of God. He's talking to the church. It's the church where these things are happening. And as we come to Isaiah chapter 6, what we're meant to see is God not just preparing Isaiah for an extremely difficult ministry, we'll come to that later, but God dealing with his servant in the same way that God in his holiness deals with all people in every generation. So, what does the holiness of God mean for you and me this morning? In chapter 6, it means three things. And the first is this. God's holiness strips us. And we're looking at verses 1 to 5. How do we get there? Well, the atmosphere in these opening verses is that Isaiah was given an overwhelming experience of the holiness of Almighty God. Verse 1 sets the tone. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now Uzziah, King Uzziah, not to be confused with the prophet Isaiah, ruled for 52 years. And when he died, he left the nation, very understandably, in a state of great uncertainty. I guess it was rather like that here, wasn't it, when Nelson Mandela died. Everyone was saying, well, look, it's the end of an era. What's going to happen now? And amidst the uncertainty that followed the death of Israel's earthly king and weighed down by the spiritual decline that he saw all around him, Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord, the everlasting King, seated on his heavenly throne. He is, verse 1, high and exalted. In other words, he's, he's far above humanity, he's separate from us. As we've seen, that's part of what it means for the Lord to be holy And as he surveys the scene around the throne, Isaiah sees seraphs. That's a really important detail. It's the only place where seraphs are mentioned in the Bible. And the name seraph literally means burning one. Burning one in the sense of burning purity. So these seraphs, these creatures, are sinless, They're perfectly pure, heavenly beings. And yet, isn't it interesting that in spite of their moral perfection, what must they do in the presence of the Lord? Verse 2. With two wings, they covered their faces. God is too holy. God's too morally perfect for these holy seraphs even to look at. That's a word to us, isn't it? And the seraph song in verse 3 tells Isaiah how to understand what he's seeing with his eyes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, Isaiah, you might think it's all chaos down there. But the Lord who's all-powerful, absolutely pure, has got all things under His perfect control all the time. The whole earth is full of His glory. Notice how Isaiah reacts. Verse five: "He's devastated. "Woe well, to me," I cried. "I'm ruined." So the man who's just been proclaiming woe to Israel, back in chapter 5, now sees himself as no different to them. And friends, isn't it true that as we get closer to God, the more clearly we see our own sin? Isn't that right? That can actually be a very humiliating experience. And here's the big point. The big point for us to take away from Isaiah chapter 6 is that God can do very little with any of us until we see ourselves like this, not doctrinally, not theoretically, not on paper, but really and truly ruined and lost apart from God's grace. Do you see yourself like that? And you see, that needs to be a conviction that you and I never move away from. I am a man of unclean lips. I am the problem. Not anybody else. Not the church. Not my parents. Not my spouse. Not my colleagues at work. No, it's me. And I emphasize that because in recent years, you see, there's been this tremendous tendency, hasn't there, to, to remove any thought of personal accountability out of the church... And to look for someone else to blame. Isaiah shows us that's nonsense. He teaches us that as we get closer to almighty God. By meditating on who God is. As he shows himself to us in the pages of scripture. So all of our attempts to justify ourselves. All our excuses. All those things are shown for the sheer foolishness that they really are. But there's more here because all human beings have a self-image that we're comfortable with. It's the way that we hope everybody else will see us, uh, including God, because, of course, the image that we have in our minds magnifies our virtues and minimises our faults. And that's why we need to look at Isaiah's repentance very carefully indeed in verse 5. Because the place where Isaiah sees his greatest sin is his mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now that you see is a surprise. Why is it a surprise? It's a surprise because Isaiah's a prophet. So his mouth is kind of the channel of his ministry, isn't it? So before his encounter with God in the temple, what would have been the thing that in his mind made him okay with God? Well, his preaching, his mouth. But you see, his experience of the holiness of God shows him that that's completely wrong. And that's what all of us need. All of us need to see that in the light of God's holiness the thing that we actually think is best about ourselves is actually something we need to repent of. If that sounds totally weird to you let me share a comment that C.S. Lewis made about this. It's in an essay entitled Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And he said, quote, The almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it's actually far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. Because what we're trying to do is to stay just as we are, with our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, despite that, to behave honestly, chastely, and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warns you can't do. And then he says this, rather a good illustration. He says, if I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass short, but it won't produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be ploughed up and completely re-sown. That's a good comment, isn't it? See, my friends, before it does anything else, God's holiness strips us. We've got to go to God with everything, even the best things about ourselves, and we've got to give them all to him. Because it's only as we stand before him with nothing to recommend us that we can actually begin to experience his love. How does that happen? It brings us to the second point from the chapter. God's holiness strips us. God's holiness, second point, heals us. Verses 6 and 7. I've met one or two people, maybe you have too, who think that there's kind of a delay between their confession of sin and God forgiving them. Uh, Rather like, um, you know, the high court judge who needs to retire to consider his verdict. And uh, while we're waiting... We're in anguish because we we don't know whether our confession has been good enough to merit forgiveness. That is not what happens here. That's not how God works. Because no sooner has Isaiah stopped speaking. But we read in verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said... See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Three things to notice. First, God never shows you your sin except to heal you with his grace. Let me say that again. God never shows you your sin unless he wants to heal you with his grace. Yes, you know, God does show Isaiah that what Isaiah thinks is righteousness is sin, and Isaiah is crushed, woe to me, he's stripped raw, but the exercise is not gratuitous, it has a purpose. God wants to heal him. And so, friends, can I say that when God shows us things in our own lives that really do need to be changed. Don't let's run away. Don't let's try and justify ourselves. But rather, let's see the uncomfortable truth as a necessary step to a much deeper experience of God's love and His grace. God wounds Isaiah with His holiness in order to heal him with His grace. Second, Notice, will you, that the cleansing is comprehensive. Um, Isaiah simply confesses the sin God has shown him. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then God deals with all of his sin. How do we get there? Well, the seraph who brings God's verdict says, your guilt is taken away. And the word guilt is translating a word that refers to our fallen nature. It's talking about what we are by birth and the corruption that is part of Isaiah's DNA as a human being descended from Adam. All of that is immediately forgiven. And then the the word for sin in verse 7 means all of his other shortcomings in relation to the law of God. That's very liberating. So it means that Isaiah doesn't have to recite a comprehensive list of all the things he thinks he's done wrong and be worried in case he's forgotten any of them. No, the very moment that he drops all pretensions to righteousness before God, God forgives him all of his sins. Past, present, future. And then thirdly, won't you please notice that the cleansing is achieved through the payment of a price. Now you've got to look a little bit harder to see this. But the the verb that's translated atoned for in verse 7 means to ransom by means of a substitute. That's what verse 7 means. And the idea is supported, isn't it, by the fact that the the means of cleansing for Isaiah was a coal, a live coal, taken from the altar, verse 6. See, the altar was the altar of sacrifice at the temple where people who'd sinned could offer an animal sacrifice as a substitute, provided, of course, the animal was perfect and without blemish. But I'm sure you've noticed there's no animal mentioned here, is there? God simply says, your sin is atoned for. And the existence of the substitute is assumed. So if the, if the ransom for Isaiah's sin wasn't a sheep or a goat, what on earth was it? Keep a finger in Isaiah. Turn with me, please, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Now, the context here in Mark 10, and we're going to be looking at verse 43 and following. The context is the disciples have been arguing between themselves about who is greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives them a lesson in true greatness. Look at the middle of verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? as a ransom the price the substitute a ransom for many mark 10 45 your memory verse for this week see jesus makes the extraordinary statement think about it think about this he makes the extraordinary statement that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not you know a super impressive powerful person no no it's not It's someone who's emptied themselves. It's someone who's been stripped of all human glory. And God, in his holiness, needed a sacrifice as perfect as that to heal us from all our sin and guilt. We'll come back to Isaiah. So far, we've seen that God's holiness strips us. God's holiness heals us. Lastly, God's holiness transforms us, verses 8 to 13. Now in uh, verse 8, Isaiah is invited to listen in to what sounds to us a a bit like a a missionary committee meeting in the local church. Uh, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, the us there is a very clear reference to the persons of the Trinity. And they're discussing which human being might be suitably qualified to go and preach to the people of God. Now the change, I want you to notice this, the change in Isaiah is astonishing. Because in verse 5 he thinks his life and his ministry are at an end. But now in verse 8 he's been healed and immediately he puts his hand up and says here I am, send me, I'll go. And the Lord said go and tell this people be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, what I want you to understand in this final section is that God sends Isaiah to do a ministry that in human terms is going to look like a complete failure. He's going to be preaching to Israel, for the next 50 years. And there's going to be very little to encourage him. No revival, no wholesale repentance. It's actually worse than that, because when Isaiah asks how long he's got to sign up for, verse 12, the Lord says, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. So the major landmark in Isaiah's ministry is going to be the invasion of Israel by Assyria in 722 BC and the exile of the ten northern tribes. Now, you Bible college students, would you sign up for that? Hmm? No, you wouldn't, would you? Notice that Isaiah's not frightened. You know, he doesn't try and renegotiate the deal with God, does he? He just goes and he gets on with the job. Faithfully, clearly, explaining the word of God to people who don't listen, don't understand, and who in the end are carried off to exile. Not much encouragement there, is there? And you see, the big point for us to take away from this is that because, because... Of Isaiah's experience of God's holiness, Isaiah is not afraid of failure. I I suggest to you that one of the great burdens that secular culture has laid on men and women in the last 30 years or so is a crippling bondage to success. I say it's crippling because... We become so terrified of failure that we're reluctant to try anything new unless it's got success written all over it. And while that's true, I, th- I think, in our everyday lives, the worst of it is that we bring that into our Christian lives as well. See, it's not that we've given up sharing the gospel at work or with our next door neighbour or with those difficult family members or wherever it is. Most of us are too frightened to even get started. I suggest that one of the inescapable applications of this magnificent passage is that a real experience of the holiness of God results in an irresistible call to gospel work with no fear of failure. A few years ago we Ran a ministry to businessmen down in the CBD in Cape Town, and uh, one of the regulars there was a very senior businessman who sat on the board of dozens of different companies. He'd been a churchgoer uh, his entire life without ever getting converted, and then one day God woke him up. And the way that God woke him up was to give him an unarguable experience of his holiness. And the result was that you know well he continued in his job for some years and he's still a successful businessman today he suddenly saw his life as one of committed gospel witness that came first in his life and so he started inviting everybody in his office to those lunchtime meetings and the idea that that might have been a risk that it might have been harmful for his career that the family might stop speaking to him well never crossed his mind So, what kept Isaiah going through the long years of almost fruitless ministry? Look at the last part of verse 13. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. See, what Isaiah does have to hold on to is the promise of the Holy Seed. And when we read on a couple of chapters, we get to chapter 11 and verse 1, that Holy Seed becomes a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who's later revealed, of course, as the Lord Jesus. See, he's the one, he's the one who fulfills all of God's promises to bring God's blessing to all nations. Israel's important, but it wasn't all about Israel. There's a really important application for us in this this morning. You and I must learn from Israel's mistake. They sat under Isaiah's preaching for 50 years, and they never did anything with it. Nothing has changed since Isaiah's day. Multitudes go to church on Sunday. How many are actually taking God's word seriously? You know the answer. But God's judgment on Israel is there as a warning to us. Because verses 9 and 10 are quoted no less than five times in the New Testament. Why is that? Because those verses are a warning to Christians in every age that sitting under the preaching of God's word is actually a hazardous pursuit. There ought to be a clause in your insurance policy about this. Because you see, when you sit under the preaching of God's word, your heart never remains the same. Think of the sun. The sun can either melt wax or harden wet cement, can't it? The sun doesn't change. So every time you read the Bible, every time, or you sit under the preaching of God's word, your heart will either harden or it will soften. The one thing it will not do is remain the same. So, That means you can know whether you are right with God or not by the way you respond to his word, even this morning, even sitting there now. If you're finding it all really rather dull and tedious and you can't see how it could possibly be relevant to you, my dear friend, that is a warning that you haven't yet experienced God's holiness. And if you haven't experienced God's holiness, Well, you haven't experienced his love. It would be good for you to, that is you, put that right this morning by asking God to open your mind to see him for who he really is. You've got to start there. There isn't a shortcut. But if you believe God is speaking to you through his word this morning and you are hearing his call to serve him in your own particular situation, however difficult that might appear, well, I have to tell you, that's a very, very good sign that God has set his love on you, that he's with you now, and that he will bring you into the wholeness, the completeness, and the joy of the life of the world to come. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heavenly Father, we confess that we easily forget how holy you are. Please forgive us. Lord, as we meditate on your holiness this week, please move us to sincere repentance, especially in those areas where we have been self-righteous. And Lord, we pray that as you... Show us what we're really like inside, that you would heal us and transform us so that we would be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus with anyone and everyone as you give us opportunity. And we ask for Christ's sake. Well, I'll ask the music team to please come forward.